0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keen On, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, January the 19th, 2023. And uh, I was trying to learn something on this show, learn from other cultures, or at least talk to people who want to learn from other cultures, or teach us stuff from other cultures. Um, Late last year, I had a really interesting conversation with a a Japanese financial guru, Ken Honda, on how to become uh, a Zen zen millionaire. Uh, He has a book out, Happy Money, using, I guess, Zen or Buddhist principles to make sense of contemporary capitalism. We also did an interesting show with Richard McCarthy, another uh, uh, American Um, who uh, has embraced Buddhist and Japanese culture uh, on the environmental front. He has a new book out, KUNI, A Japanese Vision and Practice for Urban Rural Reconnection. So capitalism and the environment, two of our great issues. Um, All rethought or attempted to be rethought through Uh, Buddhism, not just Japanese Buddhism, but Buddhism more generally. My guest today on the show is doing a similar thing, but perhaps in an even more ambitious sense. He's a a very frequent writer. I think this is his eighth or his ninth book. Uh, He has spent his life thinking and practicing Western Buddhism. Uh, He has a new book out. Uh, His name is Curtis White. Uh, The book is Transcendent, Art and Dharma in a Time of collapse and he's joining us from portland oregon at the ace hotel where he's just launched the book at uh pals one of america's finest bookstores um curtis welcome and congratulations on the new book transcendent as i said uh art and dharma in a time of collapse before we get to the art and the dharma what about this collapse um uh curtis tell me a little bit more about why you think we live in an age of collapse
1: uh it, it will be no secret uh to your audience that uh the social anxiety level is uh at as high as i can certainly in my my time my lifetime um but you know the familiar things that are very serious you know i'm not going to give you any news on that uh There's a, you know, climate collapse. There's uh, the growth of uh, a neo-fascist movement. There's uh, uh, viral diseases that are threatening to to get completely out of hand. They've already killed millions of, uh, COVID in particular has already killed millions of people. Um, And there's the the lack of social cohesion. I mean, the country seems to be uh, falling apart Um, And for as far as climate goes, you know, I mean, everybody knows about the wildfires and then the the amazing flooding going on in uh, California and in the South in particular. So if you're not thinking that it's possible for for the human world at least to collapse, you're not paying attention.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I'm doing an interview uh, and actually in a couple of hours with Adam Kirsch, who is imagining and perhaps even celebrating a post-human world. Curtis, before we, we went live, we, we talked about how you grew up in the Bay Area of the 60s and 70s. Hasn't there always been a sense of collapse? I mean, growing up in the 60s and 70s, you had Vietnam, you had a cultural crisis, you had huge amounts of, of racial violence and discrimination. What's different about the 2020s from, the, say, the 60s and 70s?
1: Well the thing about uh, the present is that uh, it feels ever more out of anybody's individual and even social control. I mean in the 60s we uh, at at least had ready access to the idea that we could refuse you know burn your draft card or whatever. I was a draft counselor at the time and an anti-war activist and you know I didn't worry too much about the war because I knew I wasn't going but uh, so, you know, I mean, that lowers your anxiety. If you're worried about dying in the muddy fields of Vietnam, if you, if, if, if it's firm in your mind that well, I'm not going there, I don't care what they do. Um, but also all the social movements at the time were a form of refusal. And that, how, how do you refuse what's going on in the present? COVID, uh, climate change, and even social dissolution. It seems It seems uh, that we need someplace else to go as well, which is why I I thought uh, to write a book that was reminding people that there is transcendence and that it would be very useful at this time uh, and that it's very ordinary. It's, It's very near us. We just have to learn how to recognize it.
0: So let's uh, let's talk about before we get to the book, the word transcendence. The the book is called Transcendent, but w- w- what does the word mean? I, I looked it up online. You can find all sorts of definitions, but I thought I would get you, um, Curtis, to define what the word means. Uh, short version is uh, there are there are
1: realities. Let's use that word. Um, Beyond the uh, material, so in other words, there, there is it is possible to access uh, a, a, uh, some call it a metaphysical dimension, and what I would say that may sound like well you know what that mean uh, uh, bodhisattvas and gods flying around in in the ether uh, I don't think it means that at all it means that our everyday life is always already Uh, working with metaphysics, working with the transcendent, working with things that we don't understand, but that are absolutely essential to
0: who we are and how we live. We already have that tradition, though, in the West, um, a, a Christian tradition. Why have you chosen to look outside? Why have you chosen to embrace buddhism or at least western buddhism what buddhism what's wrong with christianity i mean monks, uh, have, been, well, monks uh, have been seeking uh, you know, transcendence uh, uh, for 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 centuries if not millennia yeah
1: i i don't badmouth uh, christianity in this book at all uh i uh there is a very profound in fact i've been reading thomas merton uh, a lot recently there's a very a profound uh, tradition of uh, Christian contemplation, as they usually call it, um, or Merton does at least. They don't call it meditation, but they call it constant uh, contemplation, which is uh, very like the uh, Buddhist idea of meditation. And I have complete respect for that. I mean, I I, uh, really enjoy Merton, and uh, I'm a big fan of, (laughs) fan is the right word, of the uh, great theologian, Christian theologian, uh, uh, Paul Tillich.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you uh, bring up Merton. Um, uh, A few days ago, we uh, interviewed Pico Ayer. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. Uh, No. A British writer who lives in Japan who who also writes about Merton. do you see thinkers like Merton as bridges between Christianity and Buddhism? I mean, are, are the two traditions in the same business, trying to figure out the same things?
1: Well, I, it doesn't matter what I think on that. Uh, Merton thought that he he was, in fact, uh, helping to form a bridge between East and West uh, at the end of his life, which was unfortunately cut, sh- cut short during his... Uh, his uh, very important trip to to the east in thailand he was accidentally electrocuted uh by his the fan they had in his hotel room which is an absurd ending for such a glowing life uh but uh, most most famously so he died like around 68 just before things really started uh, going with uh, buddhism in the west But he had long dialogues with the uh, Zen uh, teacher and scholar D.T. Suzuki, um, which he mentions quite a bit uh, in his latest, in his late books.
0: How much of your book, um, this new book, Curtis, is a polemic, uh, uh, a dispute within Western Buddhism? I know you're not necessarily a huge fan of the secular Buddhism of, of Stephen Batchelor is quite popular. He has a book out Rethinking the Dharma for a Secular Age, another book, secular Buddhism. What's going on within Western Buddhism in terms of people disagreeing about this tradition and its future?
1: Uh, well, there to answer the first question you asked, that um the book is not the book has a uh, analytic. I would not call it polemic. I would call it ideology
0: critique. Well, let's be. Uh, let, let's. Uh, you know, I know Buddhists. Maybe for for Buddhist polemic might be a bit harsh, but um, it's just, polemic for a Buddhist or for a Buddhist uh, crit- uh, for a Buddhist piece of work. It's polemical. Should we put it? Should we put it like that? Yeah. Uh,
1: so the, uh, the book is in three parts. In the first part, it's called Delusion, and uh, it is mostly analytic and critical. So in, in the first chapter called uh, Beyond the Database Buddha, um, I look at uh, the, the confluence of three uh, fairly new currents in uh, Western Buddhism, which is um, the corporate Buddha, the science Buddha, and the secular Buddha. And uh, it seems to me that, um, I mean, the argument that I make is that uh, those three things together are co-opting Buddhism. Especially in the sense that they deny that, uh, you know, like scientists have for the last 250 years, they they deny that there's anything beyond immediately material. Going back to Newton's... uh, clockwork universe, and, and then the incredible ideological surge after uh, Darwin, when uh, Thomas Huxley, uh, also called Darwin's bulldog, began to rail against the uh, existence of, of religion insofar as it wasn't uh, mediated by uh, science. Uh, Huxley said, yeah, you can talk about uh, religion in schools, but first uh, science should essentially edit the text, edit the Bible. And, you know, it went on from there. Um, uh, the, uh, the philosopher Aras Kump uh, cre- created this thing that was called uh, positivism at the time, which argued that the uh, human history was divided into three parts. The first part was, uh, the, uh, was religion, Then came what he called metaphysics, by which he meant continental philosophy, like that of Kant and Hegel. And the final stage, uh, eliminating the the necessity of the first two, was the scientific stage. And that, that of course, was taken up in the early 20th century by uh, neopositivism and analytic philosophy, uh, uh, whose great cheerleader was, of course, uh, Bertrand Russell.
0: So There's what no you're story. describing it seems to me um Curtis is the dis- uh, what Max Weber called the disenchantment from the world from as you say from religion to metaphysics to the scientific positivism of people like Bertrand Russell is your yeah. book in in an, in a way then a call for a reenchantment or a, a way of rethinking the world so that we can bring enchantment back and perhaps you might define what you mean by that word uh well i would say that the uh enchantment
1: to use that word has never left i mean it's not as if it's it's not a thing um so we buddhists argue that uh that um you know dharma in the sense of not just a buddhist teachings but dharma in the sense of everything that is Cannot be harmed.
0: So, uh, yeah. The, so, so I, I apologize, Curtis, for jumping in here. Your title has the word dharma in it. Here we have the the Wikipedia entry on dharma. Perhaps you might define that too, because not everyone's going to be familiar with this language or this word. Right. Uh, well, usually it's given uh, two
1: definitions. One is um, the simplest one is that uh, uh, Buddhism has uh, a, a teacher the Buddha, what he teaches, the Dharma, which is, uh, you know, text-based to a degree. Um, And then the students, uh, the members of the Sangha, so teacher, text, and student. The more general second understanding of the word Dharma is that it's everything
0: that is. So coming back to the book, uh, Art and Dharma in a Time of Collapse, um, I know that you suggest that there are kinds of artists who somehow fit into this new way of becoming transcendent. Thelonious Monk, for example, or George Carlin. Looking through your argument in the book, one criticism might be that you're essentially repackaging the American counterculture, which has huge value, I admit I'm a big fan of it, within a a, a Buddhist framework, within Buddhist packaging. How do you see this connection between the American counterculture, people like Thelonious Monk and George Carlin, and the Buddhist, or at least the Western Buddhist tradition? Well, it's really important uh, to
1: know the question that I ask in the book, the question uh, that I ask, it hasn't got to do with uh, what science says, which science says, if Buddhism is going to be acceptable to Westerners, it has to be based on science. My question is very different. It is, uh, why were we so open to uh, Buddhism when it arrived definitively on our shores in the 50s and 60s? And my answer to that question is that it wasn't, it was certainly the counterculture, but the uh, the counterculture is part of a much older tradition in uh, the West, going back to the late 18th century, um, uh, uh, the tradition of Romanticism. And uh, uh, what uh, was called um, more recently by critics, the, the religion of the poets. And you know, you can see that all over in Blake, uh, but also in uh, you know the great English poets of that period, uh, they were they were seeking not just well there was an element that they were seeking to become an, a, one of the great English poets right I mean there was some ego involved but they were also uh, seeking a, 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 you know a new spiritual reality that wasn't the Church of England that wasn't the corruption of the of the clergy. Um, and uh, you know that tradition of art, uh, and in philosophy as well, with the German Romantic philosophers like uh, Schelling and uh, Hegel, um, that that continued right along through Nietzsche uh, and into the 20th century. Uh, uh, usually in uh, in forms of art in the during the counterculture itself, beginning with the Beat poets, of course. Um, but um, you know, Kerouac, Gary Snyder, uh, but also you know the music of, the, of that period was uh, you know think about the jazz musicians with who were explicitly spiritual in their approach to the music. Alice Coltrane, John Coltrane, um, Pharaoh Sanders, in particular. Uh, there was a a, a, a great spiritual. Motivation in that music. And um, that music was part of the ambiance, the, the zeitgeist of, of, of the 60s counterculture. But the thing that I argue and that is very important is that the 60s counterculture had a legacy. It was part of an old tradition. Um, and I just, you know, in this book, want to remind people of that. Uh, it, we don't need science uh, in order to uh, understand what's going on in, in Buddhism. And actually, um, I don't even argue that we need art. I think that it's a historical fact that that art helped us to understand Buddhism. Western art did, but Buddhism is Buddhism. Buddhism doesn't need uh, art or science
0: in order to be what it is. Um, Curtis, you've, you've. You used the word science several times already in this conversation, indicating a degree of, if not hostility, certainly skepticism. You're talking to me from the Ace Hotel in Portland, Oregon. You've got electric lights. We're talking on a computer, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to be too trite here. But I I assume you don't believe that to to become transcendent, we have to return to the cave. We have to do away with our computers and our electric lights. What no, I, are the? Are you are you warning about a limitation? Um, a, a, the the philosophy of science is limited. I assume you believe we can still live with modern science. We just don't. We shouldn't believe in it. Is that your message?
1: Uh, I make a, an important distinction between science and science as an ideology, as a as a a system of beliefs that don't actually have anything to do uh, with. Science per se. I'm uh, I'm not anything like a scientist myself, but I read lots of popular science books and I enjoy them a great deal. Um, so science is science is great, uh, as long as, when it's doing its own thing. But science has become uh, unfortunately um, the uh, a partner to uh, corporate capitalism. And through corporate capitalism, uh, um, it has become an ideological aspect of of corporate capitalism or of capitalism in general. Because, um, you know, capitalism pays science's bills in uh, a lot of senses.
0: Because you mentioned it at the beginning, science is
1: expensive to- <laughs> for one right. thing. But but you know, it'd be nice. It'd be nice. Think about the think about the ways in which science is responsible for climate change. I mean, without science, we would not have industrial capitalism. We wouldn't have techno capitalism. We never would have had those things. But and so, science currently is always saying, "Trust us." We know the answers to how we're going to fix climate change or whatever. But I, I want to, I, what I want to hear first is the culpa. You
0: know, I'm always going to the express that, Mayor Kalpa, that the head of the head of Apple or Google or some lab somewhere or the head of uh, IBM.
1: Well, you know, science is not silent. Science is talking all, to us all the time but I don't hear anything in there. You know, you have to go back to Robert Oppenheimer and Einstein to see really public and forward confessions of, uh, uh, you know, questioning of of what exactly science's role in society is and what, to what degree is it culpable uh, of some, some of these horrors? Robert, uh, uh, Oppenheimer was particularly forceful
0: in that way, and you also kind of, have uh, he, uh, he was the inventor of of, of, the the atom bomb. Weapon, yeah. of the atom bomb. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot here, Curtis, and you know we could argue about the value of modern medicine, but let's focus more on the book on on on. We
1: something. could also argue about big pharma,
0: right? Exactly. That, We've had many shows that, on big that, pharma. Right, right. No defender of big pharma, but let's go back to your original. Uh, observation about anxiety um, and why uh, in the subtitle of your book, um, Art and Dharma in a Time of Collapse, the time of collapse for you is, is the anxiety. It seems to me as if in many ways it's a return to the 60s and 70s in the sense that it's the anxiety of a younger generation and yet it's a younger generation very much attached to their cell phones and network technology is there a message do you think in your book for younger people that one way to address their anxiety and perhaps cure it is through Western Buddhism?
1: Uh, sure, I think that's there. Um, the you know uh, if if you look at the polls when they're taken about work satisfaction in this country, they're they're pretty abysmal. Uh, people are not. Ne- People are at this point here. The the story for uh, workforce preparation in this country is basically this: If you want a good job, you have to get, you have to uh, get it in science and technology. You have to study the STEM disciplines: science, technology, enge- engineering, and math. Um, so kids uh, say, "Okay, I'll go to college in order to get this good job." But the first thing they learn when they go to college is that they're going to go deep into debt. And, and in order to, so what will they study? Uh, they'll study, they'll have to study what, what will allow them to pay off their debt. So they end up studying these STEM disciplines and they end up getting jobs that, you know, under different circumstances, they may, they may never have wanted. And to the degree that they can su- uh, uh, survive in a, in a cultural situation like that, it, they try to find things that are outside of uh, that. And in some ways that's what the mindfulness movement has done is give them someplace else to go uh, to help them cope with um, their unhappiness and the stress that they feel. Um, you know, it's not only that when kids come to Seattle, say, to work in the tech industry that they, have, they bring with them enormous debt, but uh, then they, you know, they, get big, they get big salaries in Seattle, but then they, then they find out how much rents are. So between rents and college debt, uh, they they better be making a lot of money. And I just saw in the paper today that Microsoft, which is headquarters in Seattle, is going to lay off yet another ten thousand workers. So they're not they're not only uh, uh, working unhappy jobs that for many of them are quite unhappy. They are in debt. They're uh, they're being taken advantage of by rent renters, rentier class. Uh, but, um, uh, oh, I forget what the fourth thing was right now. Um, but, um, yeah, oh, they're living in precarity because they, they thought, oh, well, I get into the tech field and I'll have a job forever. They'll always need this. And now they find out, well, no, that's not true. It's, uh, they're, they're more like uh, working class people, or, you know, w- w- working in Ohio at a, at a tire factory or something that got moved to, to Mexico, they're more like those people than they know or that they knew. They're no, they know it now.
0: Curtis, you, you mentioned Jack Kerouac. We talked about Thelonious Monk and George Carlin, many of the the iconic figures of the counterculture who, of course, I'm not sure whether those individuals, but more broadly, the, they pioneered a hallucinogenic, drugs, which are making a a reappearance, perhaps in a a troublingly corporate context. But what's the connection, if at all, between transcendence and the consequences of hallucinogenic drugs?
1: Uh, I have no idea. I I don't think about that problem much.
0: So to, to, to reach transcendence doesn't require... Any no. external stimulants? Uh, no. How have you that? Done was a notice? that was
1: a great piece of logic in the counterculture. You know, you had Jimi Hendrix's first uh, album uh, called uh, "Are You Experienced"? You know, and the experience obviously referred to uh, hallucinogens or at least to
0: weed. Um, uh, uh,
1: but what uh, I'm saying with, in this book with, has nothing transcend- to do with that
0: uh, at all. transcendence. Do you see yourself as someone who has become transcendent? Are you a model or are you always moving that way, seeking transcendent?
1: Uh, I I think I've always been in my way, uh, a a spiritual seeker. And I'm more more and more comfortable within that. At at the older I get, I'm more and more comfortable with the idea that... uh, you know, my outer self, uh, Curtis White, is the most un, unreal is is more unreal than a kind of inner self within which I'm very comfortable. and And the experience of art, music in particular, and uh, Buddhism, uh, has been the primary reason that that inner self has had the opportunity to grow and be, and and for me to become comfortable with it.
0: Was there a moment, Curtis, where you recognized that transcendent, where the, the break, if you like, between what you call the inner and the outer world became increasingly self-evident to you, at least in the inside? And does it manifest itself externally? Do you glow? I mean, does it? how would you mm-hmm. even know whether someone else had transcendence? Yeah. Sometimes I catch on fire. I'm glowing so hard. you, you got to catch on fire for me, Curtis. That would make some news. Sell some books, at least. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, well, you know, it, it's, uh,
1: as the Grateful Dead said, uh, it's a long, strange trip. But uh, when I went to the university uh, in San Francisco, uh, one of the things that I discovered was that I could go to Symphony Hall for free as I, you know, I, I would serve as an usher and then I could sit in any seat that was vacant and listen to music. Um, and one of those concerts was uh, a performance of uh, Gustav Mahler's Kindertoten leader. And that music is so intensely, A, sad, but uh, B, transcendent, that it took me to a place I'd never been. And I was, you know, you know it's the kind of, everybody has this experience, I think, with music. Uh, where they're listening to the music and and suddenly it takes them someplace they've never been before, you know, and usually, very often it causes us to cry, but it's kind of what they call happy tears. Um, And, uh, you know, USF is a Jesuit university, and uh, uh, so I was around Catholics for the first time. And I did yeah, have
0: an happy, yeah. I like the idea of happy ears. It sort of fits with Ken Honda's notion of happy money. Um, you mentioned happy going dear. to uh, the symphony to hear the San Francisco Symphony to hear Mahler, which is a very transcendent, as you suggest, experience. Um, I know you've spent some time in the San Francisco Zen Center. For people in the audience, for listeners and viewers who are who who haven't had the good fortune of getting free tickets for the symphony. Or even know who or what Marler is. Where would we begin? I mean, we need to read your book, of course, um, Curtis: Transcendent Art and Dharma in a Time of Crisis. Might be good to drop in at your local Zen center. So, if you're a San Francisco resident, for example, go to the San Francisco Zen Center. I know you um, you live uh, in in, uh, in um, where in Port. Uh, Port Townsend, uh, Washington, so another world. But are are there lots of Zen centers around? Is this a good way to begin? There are lots of
1: sanghas around, and they're all very open and very welcoming. And uh, I I, I have uh, actually recently uh, convinced my daughter, uh, you know, I I would talk to her about Buddhism um, over the years, but uh, I have finally convinced her to uh, actually uh, become a member of a local Sangha in, in Seattle. And um, it's, a, you know, if you try to meditate by yourself in your study or your room or wherever, uh, it, that's one thing, it's very difficult. But when you, when you meditate with other people, you can really turn it into something that you do regularly. And that's the important thing, is that Buddhism is a, a practice. You know, you're on a path and you're practicing. And so, what people usually often discover is that uh, e- even if it's very frustrating at first, if they just keep going, uh, they get to places that they, uh, that they never expected to, to experience. So yeah, I, there are, there are at least three or four, uh, small sanghas in, in Port Town And
0: what is a sangha, a, a sort of a communal
1: meditation yeah. place? It's uh, well. Originally, the sangha was the monks in a monastery, but it was a community of monks in, in a monastery. But uh, the, one of the great things I think of, of about uh, Buddhism coming to the West is that that idea of the sangha uh, became open to lay people. I'm, you know, I'm not a Dharma teacher, and I'm not a scholar of Eastern religion. I'm just, a, I'm just a, a lay practitioner. What the the Buddha called a, a housekeeper. <laughs> Um, You know, rather than a monk wandering without a home, you know, I stay in my house.
0: I began, uh, Curtis, uh, suggesting that your book and your tradition has answers to how we live our lives. Uh, And it's certainly an important book, Transcendent, Art and Dharma in a Time of Crisis. Uh, Not crisis, collapse. Sorry. We all as human beings eventually collapse. We will die, of course. Does your book and your tradition and your work, does it rethink death? I know that the the Buddhists have a different conception, I think, of what happened to us after we Uh, die uh, to to Christians or Jews or Muslims. Um, How does uh, your book Transcendent address the issue of death, if at all?
1: Well, uh, I'd be out of my league a bit if I I did that, but, uh, um, you know, that's a, that's a heavy Buddhist uh, teaching, uh, but Buddhism does, uh, does encourage us to die to death. What Buddhism wants is not for us to, to jettison off to some Buddhist paradise. It wants us to, uh, to find liberation and liberation from, what? from the reasons of suffering that we experience in the world itself. So in order to do that, Buddhism advocates that we die to to death. If the thing that we fear most within our world is the the fact of death, uh, then Buddhism wants us to stop suffering in that way and die to death.